Welcome to Manufacturing Success, a podcast presented by the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. My name is Mike Carruth. I'm a partner in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Fisher and Phillips, and I'm a member of the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. Let's get started with this episode of Manufacturing Success. Today's conversation is part three of a three-part discussion we've had on how employers should legally prepare for a reduction in force. Today, we will talk about manufacturing employers and what they should understand about paying severance benefits and using severance agreements and releases as part of a reduction in force. Our guest for this conversation today is Terry Stewart, who is a, the, a regional managing partner in the Fisher and Phillips office in Atlanta, Georgia. Terry focuses her practice on defending employment-related lawsuits at trial and at the appellate level. In doing this, Terry has developed a great deal of experience in RIF situations, including the best practices for severance benefits and severance agreements, which is our topic today. With that, Terry, welcome to the Manufacturing Success Podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right, well, let's get started here. First question, uh, kind of a fundamental question. Should manufacturers pay severance benefits if they're going to need to implement a reduction in force? Well, the first kind of question to, to think about when considering that is, does um, state or local law actually require you to pay severance benefits? The general rule um, under federal law and in almost most states and most locations is that it is not a required uh, payment for the most part. So then it's just a company decision on whether or not a company should do that. It's a great benefit um, to employees that have been caught up in a reduction in force. Um, it helps them transition. It helps them um, fill the gap in looking for a new role um, and make them feel better about uh, the actual uh, separation that was uh, likely inevitable due to other business conditions. Um, so in that way, it also makes them less likely to sue uh, because they're happier as they leave, but it's not always financially viable for a company to do so. So um, if that is the case, then it's, it's back to reverting to whether state and local law actually require it. And um, if, if not, then you're free not to allow it. And if you do want to allow it, um, it's about you know, what you want covered and how much you want to pay and, and um, whether you should uh, obtain a release, which I think is what we're going to chat about in just a moment. Yeah, well, that's, you had a good question. This, I know it's not exactly the same, but when you settle a lawsuit, or you're trying to settle a lawsuit, the question, how much do you want to put on the table to get it resolved? So to me, right. offering severance benefits is kind of the same analysis. So do you have like in your practice and advising clients, like a rule of thumb on how much severance benefits they should ask, or you, you see something common in certain parts of the country? Um, it, because it's a company decision, there is no one size fits all. If a com company can only afford a week or two um, to everyone, then that's better than nothing. But um, we often see as just general industry trends as one year for every week of service that can actually be capped. Um, it can start, um, you know, after perhaps you've been with the company for a full year. 
Um, but uh, one week for every year of service tends to be something that's thrown around a lot and people understand and know, but it's not generally uh, required under, uh, under law in any way. Are there any situations in your experience where employers should provide some type of severance benefit, but not obtain some type of severance release in exchange for that? It would be a very rare circumstance to provide benefits and not obtain a release. In fact, the the only time I would ever say that that would be the case if you are otherwise contractually obligated to pay that severance amount, um, either under state and federal law or by contract. And even in contract, we often, uh, if we're involved in the drafting, we usually say that, you know, in a reduction force, you may be guaranteed a up to X number of weeks of severance, but it's still conditioned upon a release. So um, under the basics of good old fashioned contract law, you have to have some type of consideration or some type of value to support the contract. So if you're otherwise obligated to pay the benefit in some other way, you don't necessarily have sufficient consideration. But if you increase that amount, even a dollar, or offer some other type of non-monetary benefit like outplacement services, then that can often be sufficient to uh, support the release. So uh, I'm a big fan of if you're going to um, the trouble of paying, then you should get uh, something for what you're paying for. And um, you can avoid subsequent lawsuits with a general release of claims if they accept the severance agreement, which is extremely value for, valuable for a company that's going through uh, a reduction in for, force for the, in the first place. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I, I, I think that's sound advice. So then, since they should most frequently or most commonly be used, what should a severance release or severance uh, document contain? Well, as a general rule, severance and release agreements um, only release those claims that are identified um, in the agreement itself. So if we are drafting it, we're making it as broad as possible to release as much as possible to avoid um, any future claims under as many laws as possible. Um, so uh, we generally release anything that's possible to release. There are things that cannot be released, like future claims um, after the date the agreement is executed, vested benefits, under state law, certain workers' compensation benefits, and um, certain wage and hour uh, type of claims. And in some instances, uh, those can be uh, waived, but they just have to have the right language, the right notice provisions. So uh, especially with wage and hour, um, we would have beneficial language in the agreement that reflected that the that the individual had been paid for all hours worked and that nothing more was owed to them um, under their work history. Um, but in, in drafting the language to, to make it as broad as possible, we make sure to cite those laws that need to be cited and, and provide other uh, notice requirements um, that are mentioned in state law. How wise is it for a manufacturer or any employer to rely on a template agreement that they may have received two or three years ago and say, hey, we'll use that in 2023. We did it in 2019. Is that a wise move? 
It is not for, for many reasons. Um, one, we have seen um, significant um, local and actual federal movement on what can and can't be included in an agreement. So um, you wanna make sure that it's tailored to the state and sometimes even the city um, and the local municipality because some local municipalities have specific requirements. Uh, of not only where your individual um, works, but sometimes where they live, because as the hybrid workforce um, continues to grow, the definition of where someone works um, can uh, be a little bit fluid. And I, I imagine Dave mentioned that in the Warren analysis of where is work anymore. Um, often uh, on a manufacturing line, that's very easy to, to tell, but if there are executives in those roles or other management roles going from plant to plant, that can be different. So you definitely want to make sure that um, you are checking with your labor and employment attorney to make sure you have the new provisions um, and what's required. And we'll probably talk a, a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, because uh, the NLRB has been very active. There's restrictive covenant issues um, and even confidentiality issues with harassment claims that um, are always changing and certain provisions are prohibited where they weren't were allowed or they need to be tailored to be rewarded differently. Right, well, I think you may have covered some of these, but are there additional or other special circumstances related to severance agreements and releases in a reduction in force that the manufacturing employers ought to be aware of? Absolutely. One of the um, most common one um, is the accurate release of age claims. Um, in order to release an age claim um, for anyone that is over 40 under federal law, under the Age Discrimination Employment Act, there's several requirements or boxes that have to be checked with certain provisions in the agreement. Um, one of those is uh, if there are two or more people terminated as part of the same uh, decision, then you have to um, have 45 days to consider the agreement, the right co to consult an attorney, and seven days to revoke the agreement. In addition, you have to have what's called an OWBPA disclosure, which identifies the process for which you made your in which you made your decision. Um, those the ages and job titles for those who were considered and selected, and it is that provision that provides um, the the biggest hiccup for employers because it is not always obvious. In defining your decisional unit, it was who was um, considered and who was selected on um, the age and job titles of that group. So for example, if you're outsourcing your accounting department, it, everyone in the accounting department was, would likely be considered and all of them would be selected. However, if you're looking to reduce your overall uh, expense for uh, employee salary and compensation, you might have considered everyone in the company and only certain individuals of that group were selected. So that's where we see the biggest issue. And um, because that document is provided to, to everyone as part of the reduction in force, we have confidentiality concerns. It can be a large document. It can be 
um, something where there's a, a lot of uh, places where you can trip up in that process. So that's the biggest one that, that we see. Um, but it also, um, you need to make sure that your restrictive covenants are reviewed as part of that. Um, some states allow you to insert new restrictive covenants, such as non-competes and non-solicits, but others say that's absolutely prohibited. So um, anytime you have uh, a higher level executive with, with restrictive covenants or even salespeople with non-solicits, um, that should be considered. And then those points that I mentioned earlier on confidentiality, the right to engage in a government investigation, whether or not you're allowed to recover if the government pursues an action on their own behalf. Um, and then uh, state and local laws have um, a plethora of other items that should be considered based on where your employees live and work. Based on the work you've done with the firm, is, are there any kind of resources that the firm offers uh, employers that are manufacturing employees or any employers facing a rift? Is there any uh, standard uh, uh, packages or information that uh, people should uh, possibly consider? Sure. We have um, developed uh, a pretty thorough rift uh, toolkit that has um, guides, uh, templates, both warrant and severance agreements that can be a good starting place for things to consider as you go through your reduction in force. Um, obviously, they need to be customized to your situation, but they're a very good starting place. Uh, in addition to that, we have a Reduction in Force Task Force, which is a group of attorneys and practitioners that specialize in various aspects of this. Uh, you've met a few of them already with Haygood and Dave, uh, myself, but there are many more um, and, and involved in our, our RIF Task Force that can be an immediate uh, source of information without really having to start researching from, from the start, they're already well-versed and experiencing in, in these areas and often can provide uh, uh, this in, advice and, a, and the toolkit essentially right off the top of their head. Okay, good. All right. Well, excellent. Uh, that sounds like a very good thing for people to look into. Well, Terry, uh, anything else you want to add? This has been very helpful. Sure. Um, just, you know, a couple other points I wanted to mention. And that's with respect to um, a few other state law considerations. We talked about it with respect to what needs to be considered with the severance and release agreement. But um, you also need to consider state and, and local laws with respect to other issues, such as uh, required payout of PTO, sick time, or vacation. Does your um, state require that? Is it required in a risk scenario, but not in other scenarios? There's also final paycheck laws. Um, some individuals need to be paid on their last day of employment versus um, some later date. Um, there's also certain notice requirements that if you have a reduction in force, um, I'm sure Dave went over some of those in the WARN context, but there's state law WARN and other um, state law notice requirements from a jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So, um, you know, just making sure you're not looking at it just from a, a warned perspective, severance and release, but also what other laws might come into play that we need to consider as we implement this RIF. Well, Terry, 
thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for being part of Manufacturing Success Podcast. We hope everyone found today's conversation helpful, and we look forward to having you join us again. Have a great day. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. Thank you.